So again, good morning. Um, a lot of you probably still don't know who I am, and some of you may be new here, so let me just briefly introduce myself. Um, my name is Myung. I, uh, I'm a seminary student at Gordon-Conwell. I'm a seminary intern here at Cornerstone Church. I've been coming for about a uh, year and a half now. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm a seminary student up at Gordon-Conwell. It's in a small town called South Hamilton. Any of you ever been to South Hamilton by any chance? Yeah, so a couple of you went there. <laughs> and it's probably because there's nothing to do there. Um, so if, by the way, if I haven't asked you to visit me, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I feel bad, you know? Like, I can show you where your pastors are made. It's just not fun. But anyway, before I moved to South Hamilton for seminary, I used to be pre-med. Some of you guys know what that's like, to used to be pre-med, right? I wanted to be a pediatrician, right? So my senior year, I gave my soul to MCATs, and that's the test you need to take to apply to medical school. Some of you guys are there right now. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I signed up also for MCAT classes. So I was in a class of about six other people or so, and day one, it turns out that my freshman year floor mate, who was my year, she's my age, she was teaching the class. And so day one, she walks in, she's like, oh, hi, Myung, and I'm just like, hi. <laughs> like, I thought, like, I seriously thought, I mean, she was clearly smarter than I was, but I thought we were on the same level, you know what I mean? But clearly, I did something wrong between freshman year and senior year, because I just paid you $1,000 to teach me. Anyway, I'm not bitter. That's fine. Whatever. There was one time, there was one time we were all sitting around, and we were talking about the various resources we were using to study for the MCATs, and, and this one guy was talking about this MCAT audiobook that he had downloaded on the internet illegally, obviously, and people were sharing their email addresses so that they could send it around. And so I was about to be like, oh, yeah, me too. Let me get in that. And then I was like, ah, you know what? I'll take my test with integrity because I know God is with me. Yeah, yeah it didn't work. A couple months later, right, who gets into medical school? Yeah, all of them do. And then who doesn't get into medical school? <laughs> yeah, this guy right here. Right? And at a certain point, at the end of that year, I couldn't help but at one point be like, God, what the heck? And not just because of that incident about the, the MCAT audiobook or whatever, but really just because... I couldn't help but feel like, you know, I've really tried and lived my life in a way that honors you. I've really tried to follow you as best I can and do things your way, God. But how is it that I end up here and all those other guys who apparently really don't care about you whatsoever, they get exactly what they want? How does that work? Some of you guys are like, maybe your application just wasn't very good. (laughs) That's probably true, too. But really, I think this points to kind of a larger reality, right? We, we often proclaim certain truths about God, that God is loving, that he's good, that he cares for us, so on and so forth. And sometimes in our lives, that's very clear and that's very evident, and we love when that happens, right? So. And then there are times when what we know about God and what we see in our lives, they're at odds. You feel me on that? There are times, in fact, when when it seems like our lives are just the same, if not worse, than that of the people who really couldn't care less about God or religion or anything like that, who do whatever they want. That is a reality, I think, for many of us here. And we find ourselves asking in those moments, what, what, what is God doing? What is God doing? Because what we know, again, about God and what we see in our lives, they're at They're at odds. 
And this is kind of the tension that this guy named Asaph is facing, right? Asaph was one of King David's chief musicians, right? And the author of Psalm 73, which we'll be getting into today. And now instead of going, doing like a, a point one, two, three thing like I've done in the past, uh, like they teach at Gordon Conwell, I'm going to be a rebel today. We'll just walk through this chapter verse by verse uh, and see what Asaph wants to get across. Because there's already kind of a flow within this chapter. And this psalm is one that's known as a, an instructive psalm. So it's not just about this guy named Asaph expressing his feelings. This is an instructive psalm meant for the people of God to, to hear and receive and to learn something from it. So let's see what Asaph is getting into today, all right? So verses 1 through 3. I know this is a lot of text. I realized as after I got here and put it up here, it's kind of a lot and might be hard to see. Um, so if you need to, go ahead and you can pull out your Bibles or phones and, and follow along in, in Psalm 73. Um, although I also want to take this time to encourage you not to uh, use this as an excuse to go on social media and things like that. Let's, let's really try to honor God for these 30, 30 something minutes or so, okay? So verses 1 through 3 here in Psalm 73. Asaph is setting up what's about to happen. Okay, here's the introduction. Truly, truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so Asaph starts with what he generally understands to be true. Right? And especially in Old Testament times, God had made very clear, right? If you disobey me, I will curse the people of Israel. But if you obey me, God will what? I will bless you. But then Asaph looked at the world around him, and despite what God had promised, what he knew about who God is and what he does, it's the, it's the wicked, meaning that it's the people who don't care about God, who live in active disobedience, they're the ones prospering. And that word prospering doesn't just mean something financial. We're talking about a general overall sense of of peace and welfare. And we kind of know what this is like, right? We see people who really, really just do not care about God at all and live however they want, and somehow they have everything going for them. And this kind of messes with Asaph. And not because he doesn't want them to do it, not because he hates them necessarily, because, again, what he knows about God and what what he sees in his life They're at odds. And so he said, God is truly good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and yet what he sees is that the wicked are prospering. And this had Asaph shaken up a little bit. Now, verses 4 through 12 are going to develop this kind of rising conflict, all right? So they, the wicked, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, which is an expression of their extravagance. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And that phrase right there symbolizes a kind of a divine, godly, royal presence roaming amongst his people, right? The, their speech and their way of life, everything is just full of arrogance and pride. And that is the extent of it. And then he continues, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Right? They're straight up mocking God himself. 
And Asaph says, behold, these, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, can you, can you maybe think of people like this in your life, right? either generally speaking or specific people you know? They don't care about God. They'll go as far as to mock the very idea of a God, and yet they have everything going for them. Everything. There's, a, there's an evolutionary biologist, an atheist named Richard Dawkins. You guys might be familiar with him. Um, he's a hardcore anti-creationist. He wrote a book a couple years ago called The God Delusion. Right? It's about God being a delusion. A couple years ago, in 2014, he tweeted this. I just learned that the sales of the God delusion have topped three million. Please forgive me, unable to disguise my pleasure. So I don't know why I said it in such a snobby voice. This, this guy's net worth, this guy's net worth is $135 million. Now, I don't have anything against him, right? I hope, I seriously and genuinely hope that one day he will realize that his life is far more valuable than spontaneous biological chance. But it does boggle my mind sometimes that, man, someone like, like this writing books about against the existence of God can, can have all of this going for him right, and be that rich. But then, and this is kind of a sad struggle. But as if it's not hard enough to see that the wicked are prospering, meanwhile, God's people are suffering. Asaph is saying, I'm suffering on the other hand. Right? Verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. On the other hand, here's Asaph. He's devoted himself to God. He's following him as best he can, honoring God. And remember, remember, Asaph is a chief musician. He's essentially a worship leader among the people of Israel. He's a spiritual leader. And it says that he has kept his heart clean before God, and yet, and yet his life is messed up. He's suffering. All the day long, he's stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, he, he feels like he's punished every morning. So how does that work? God had clearly said, if, I, if, I, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And yet some t- somehow it's flipped. And the wicked are prospering and God's people are suffering. What, what is God doing, Right? And this is the extent of Asaph's tension, right? Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So in other words, he's saying, if I had verbalized, if I had expressed what the, all the turmoil and all the tension and the, and the anger that I was feeling inside, oh, I would have stumbled some people around me. This is, this is the extent of just Asaph's confusion and his, and his tension, right? Can you kind of sense that in Asaph in the psalm so, so far? Now, as we read this, it might be kind of easy to think that, you know, Asaph is being overdramatic or whatever, but let's be real. And I think that to a certain degree, to a certain degree, if we're real with ourselves, we can all identify with Asaph. Maybe you're thinking of, you know, a global injustice and the fact that sex trafficking is a multi-billion dollar industry. Right? Maybe on a very personal level, you can identify with Asaph, right? You're the one that's praying You're the one that's living faithfully, trying to honor God, all of that. But it's the people that really, to be blunt, don't give a crap about God, who don't give a crap about honoring him, anything like that. 
They're the ones that are more successful. They're the ones that are happier, seemingly. They're the ones that have everything going for them. And so how does that work? I'll be real with you, too. Every year, I see a bunch of Facebook friends uploading their obligatory white coat picture with their families, right? They got their school logo nicely right on, this, on the chest area right here. Some of them got their names in, like, stitched on there. I, know, I pay attention to this, yeah, right? And the caption goes, you know, uh, one year ago, I never would have imagined. You know how it goes, right? <laughs> you feel me. I pay attention to that. I know, right? By the way, social media is awesome sometimes, but it really does perpetuate this, this human tendency to compare ourselves to others, doesn't it? But Asaph is kind of making this point that in big and small ways, it often seems like the wicked are prospering. The wicked are prospering. And meanwhile, God's people, they're they're not getting things the way we think they should. And here's the thing. The struggle goes beyond just seeing other people do well, remember? It's the fact that, again, God's people are suffering. And maybe for some of you, maybe you've been trying your best, again, to, to do your best to follow God and honor him, and, and that in itself is hard, right? It's not easy to be a Christian. But on top of that, sometimes we suffer directly for it. And sometimes as hard as we try, we feel like God is distant. We can go months, we can go years, and we feel like God is nowhere to be found. And we're like, well, what am I doing this for? There's a struggle in that. And then maybe for some of you, I, you know, I can't obviously claim to know the extent of all the the things that are going on in each of your lives. Of course, I can't. But maybe for some of you, there are some serious just situations and seasons in your life that are so, just so dark, so broken, just so, so messed up. And you look at that and you go, where, where is God in that? How is this God being with me? God, what, what is God doing? And that's the reality of, of our lives. Like Asaph, we look out in the world and we see that what we know about God and, and what's out there, they're, they're at odds. We say, God, I, I gave my life to you. I devoted my life to follow you. All these years, I've been serving you in the church. I've been praying to you fervently, giving faithfully. I've been trusting that, God, you are a loving, a good, and a caring God. But why does it sometimes feel like no one's caring for me? Why, why, does, why does my life and career look like it's going nowhere? Right? Why am I still struggling through some of the exact same things? Why is my family so broken? Why am I still struggling through my life and I'm fearful, I'm still depressed, I'm still anxious about what's about to happen. And meanwhile, everyone else who doesn't care about having you in their lives even, they have everything going their way. How does that make sense? Again, sometimes what we know about God and what we see in our lives, they're at odds. And at the heart of this struggle, and, and the real question, essentially, that Asaph is asking is, God, what are you doing? And we see kind of the climax of the struggle in, the, in, in verse 16. Asaph says, when I thought to understand this, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome 
task. I just could not make sense of it. It just really does not add up. It does not make sense. It doesn't work in my head. It doesn't calculate. But the turning point until, until my circumstances and what I saw around me made no sense to me. I was in doubt and I could not see what the heck God is doing in my life until Asaph says, I went into the sanctuary of God. Now that word sanctuary in the original language, right, is actually in the plural form. So sanctuaries. So, so probably more than this just being about entering a certain physical location or, or going to a place of worship, right? Asaph's ultimate point is that something changed when he came before God and he sought out the things that are of God. Cornerstone Church, there's a, there's a real time. There is a time to emotionally or or thoughtfully process what we're going through. A time for us to try and reason it out and make sense of it. But there's a difference when we don't just try to find our way through what's going on, but instead come before God and seek the things that are of him. That could be in a place like this in corporate worship. Right? That can be in, within community. That can be in the prayer. That can be in prayer and that can be in the word of God. But there is a difference. Something changes when we, in a real way, come before God. Now, the problem is this. Myung, I've tried all that. I've done that before. I've been going to church. I've been praying. I've been reading my Bible. I've been involved in community. Nothing's changed. But the question that the psalm presses us to answer is, in what are we anticipating this change? Because this change may sometimes come in the circumstance itself, and the Bible does show that as well. But in Psalm 73, Asaph wants to get at something that's more important, and it's a change in one's own heart and mind. Verse 17 continues, Then I discerned their end, the wicked. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. There was a a change in Asaph's heart, and he began to see things for the way they really were. Because all this time, all this time, Asaph had only been looking at a snapshot, a a mere fraction, a moment of the eternal reality. You've all seen advertisements before, right? Like for Coke, you'll see this advertisement, a picture of some deceptively fit-looking dude, and he loves his Coca-Cola on a beach, right? And the reason that advertisement works is that because it only shows a fraction of the reality. It's deceptive. If we took this fit dude who loves his Coca-Cola and we somehow hit play on that advertisement, and we saw that advertisement to its full logical conclusion... I mean, we'd see a guy who, you know, is not on the beach, but passed out on his couch with four cavities, drinking his Coca-Cola, and has a giant insulin spike, right? That's the reality that we would see. But we don't see that. We are also often looking at advertisements. The advertisements show that people who don't care about God are living free and unrestricted lives, the advertisements show that the, the people who don't care about God, they're, they're enjoying their life to their best and getting everything they want and everything's going their way and things are great. 
And what they don't show and what Asaph realized, what they don't show is that gaining all this world is making them only dependent on the world. That's closer to slavery than it is to freedom. What the advertisements are not showing is their struggle to find hope, real, unshakable hope in the time of trial. What the advertisements don't show is their struggle to find ultimate, lasting meaning in their lives when they're on their deathbeds. And most importantly, what Asaph is really getting at here, what these advertisements don't show is the eternal perspective, the full conclusion Because when we die, because we all will, let's be real, those who live for the world world will have gained all the world, but they will not be with God. I was actually going to say this later, uh, but I feel like this is an appropriate place to say it. I realize that there are some of you here who, who don't believe in God or who may not have received Christ as your Savior. I realize that. And again, I've said this before, and I say it again. My, my goal is not to condemn, but to, but to invite. Right? Because the Bible makes it clear right, that there are every person, we're going to die, and we're going to end up in one of two eternal realities. And my genuine hope, I don't know all of you personally, but my genuine hope right, is that we would have the one with God and the one that Asaph is going to be talking about. Right? That's my genuine hope. And so if you don't do that today even, I hope that you will give it some serious, serious thought, okay? Now, Asaph continues in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. You know, the humbling thing is that Asaph also realizes that he's actually not much different from the people he was talking about. His soul was embittered, it was pricked in heart, it was brutish and ignorant, like a beast before God, meaning just totally stupid and senseless, right? In other words, he's just as bad, essentially, as anyone else. He doesn't deserve prosperity any more than the wicked do. You know, often we act as if we did God a favor by following him. But that's not the case. Asaph says, I was senseless and foolish before you, God, I don't deserve anything, I really don't deserve anything either. And so this is where Asaph's at. The wicked, he realized, yes, they're going to fall. And he's really just as bad as anyone else. So where does that leave him? Verse 23. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. I, I hope that in the midst of all of the struggles, internal, external, all of that, and the struggles and the suffering that we face, we will forever remember this, nevertheless. Asaph says, nevertheless, I, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. 
This is the glorious conclusion to all the tension, all the struggle, all the frustration, all the questioning in this chapter. Again, remember, the actual circumstances, verse 14 through 12 that we saw, they haven't necessarily changed. What's changed is that Asaph remembers in a very real and personal way that, yes, he might not have what the wicked have now, but he has God now and forever. So remember this question that we've been asking. God, what are you doing? The answer in Psalm 73 is that God is doing exactly what we need most. Did you catch that? God is doing exactly what we need most. Now, now that sounds nice, right? That sounds nice. But I need to clarify something, and it's that word need. Because there are things that we think we need, and then there is what God knows that we need. And our single greatest need is for God himself, and that's what God is most concerned about. Tim Keller uh, once said, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. God absolutely cares about our desires, our, our loving and enjoying this life that he gave us as a gift, our physical health, all of that. He cares about that, of course, but never at the cost of the one thing that we need most. Therefore, in verses 23, 24, Asaph says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, meaning God has me fully and securely. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, at the end of my life, when my time here on earth is done, you will receive me to glory. What God is doing is not about us enjoying this world as best as we can. It's about having God now and forever into eternity. Is that, is that sinking in a little bit? So in other words, in everything, everything that God is doing in your life right now, even the most unexplainable, just the most incomprehensible suffering, all of it, in everything, God is doing everything to lead you to him. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves so that what? that they may share in his holiness. Not that they may experience happiness in this passing life, but that they may share in eternity with God. See, the wicked will chase the world and seek the world, and they will likely get the world. But God's people suffer precisely because God loves them too much for this world to be it for them. In fact, let me, let me even make this point real quick. Can you imagine if everything actually went the way we wanted it to? Yikes, right? That'd be terrible. Hey, any of you see the movie Bruce Almighty? Am I too old? Have you guys seen the movie Bruce Almighty? It's pretty old. This guy, Bruce, gets to be God for a couple of days, and out of his impatience, he just replies all yes to every prayer request, and the whole world goes to crap, right? Everything is messed up because everyone is getting exactly what they wanted. That's a disaster. That's terrible. In fact, it's precisely because God did not do things our way that we even have the gift of salvation. Because if it were up to us, right, 
like Asaph was thinking, good people should prosper and evil people should suffer, right? That's the way it should be. Everyone should get what they deserve, right? Justice. But the problem is that if that were the case, every single one of us here would stand guilty before God. What we actually deserve is God's wrath for our sin, every single one of us. A lot of times we think, oh, I deserve better than this. No, what we don't want what we actually deserve. We don't. And the good news is that God didn't either. And that's why despite the fact that we were all brutish and ignorant, senseless fools before God, he flipped the script and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself what we deserved and gave to us what he deserved by dying on the cross. That's the gospel. And that's proof that even if it takes a moment of utter suffering and darkness, God is always doing exactly what we need most. Here's, here's something that I heard in college uh, that's actually stuck with me for a while. Imagine a man goes to his theater to watch a show, and so the curtains open, the opening scene takes place, everything is great and happy, and then the curtains close. And then this man flips out. He's like, what the heck was that? That was a show? All right. Is that what I paid for? Ah, well, that'd be stupid, right? If he starts throwing a fit right then and there, that'd be dumb. Why? Because we all know that for the show to continue and progress in the way that it's supposed to, the curtain's got to close, right? Things need to happen backstage, and then they'll open again so that we can enjoy the next scene and the next one and the next one until the grand finale. Now, I know that this is a silly example, right? But, you know, we're silly people sometimes. And sometimes we see clearly what God is doing in our lives, right? And we love those moments when we can, we can be like, oh, yeah, I was struggling with this and this, and it was so hard. But then I look back now, and I see exactly what God is doing. And we love moments like that. And there are times, however, when the curtain is closed for a while, right? And why God is doing what he is doing will be an utter mystery. And there may even be things that are, remain an utter mystery until the day we die, and the sad thing is that at this point, a lot of people decide to stop watching the show. We give up on God. We say, God, that's it. This isn't what I asked for. What is this? But remember, the closing of the curtain does not mean God's absence. In fact, it just proves his presence and that he is directing everything toward the grand finale and in the way that he knows best. God is doing exactly what we need most. In Cornerstone Church, because of Christ, our grand finale is eternity in heaven with God. In a place where we might be suffering and struggling and crying and weeping over things and just really just being wrecked over things now, but what's waiting us is a place where none of that is the case, where we will have God with us forever in perfect peace, in perfect joy, in perfect relationship with him and now, day by day, moment by moment, until that day we see him face to face, he is directing our steps right up into his loving arms. So for me, after uh, not getting into any med schools right after college, I decided to try applying again. 
So I did, and that following year, November 14th, 2014, I was on a plane ride back home from actually my third med school interview. But that previous week, I had gotten waitlisted at both of the other schools I applied to. And remember, on top of that, the previous year, I had gotten rejected from all, I think, 24 schools that I applied to. That's like $2,000 right out the window. And so I was in a tough place because everything that I had worked for for five years of my life, it was just up in the air. And it's actually on this very plane ride when I came across Psalm 73. Um, and it's why this psalm is so special to me. Uh, as I read it, you know, I entered the sanctuary, so to speak, and my, and my heart just very clearly began to change. And it got to a point where I said to myself, yeah, come 2015, I might be in med school, and I might not be in med school. But neither result is as significant as the fact that I have God with me, and I will have him with me for the rest of my life and for eternity. So, so I was sitting there in this tiny plane, right? And the person next to me is judging me for sure. But man, there was such an overwhelming peace that came over me in that moment. God, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I'll be or what I'll be doing in five or ten years. And every day in the past couple of weeks, I've been battling and waging war against this, this uncertainty and this anxiousness in my heart. And nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is not just my truth, Cornerstone Church. This is all of yours. See, a Christian, a follower of God is not someone that gets to say, hey, look, I prayed to God and I got everything I wanted. A Christian is not someone that's supposed to be able to say, yeah, I, I seriously, I just, everything is going my way. Life is great all the time. No, a Christian is someone that's able to say, no matter what it is that is in front of me, I already have everything that I need in God. See, the Bible does not promise us that when we follow God, that we will get all of our desires met. But the Bible does promise us that God will be with us through all of it. It doesn't promise us that all of our suffering and all the questions we have will be resolved on this side of eternity. But God has firmly promised us that when we follow him, we will have him through all of it and that he will sovereignly, relentlessly, and lovingly guide us every step of the way and toward him at any cost. Amen? So when you walk out of here, and you jump right back into the day-to-day. -day. And you see how much better other people are doing about who, who don't care about God. You see how much better they're doing. When you see how much you're struggling and you're suffering through life as a Christian, remember, it's just an advertisement. It's a mere snapshot of the eternal reality. When what we know about God and what we see in our lives, when they're at odds, Let's not forget that God is still doing exactly 
what we need most. Amen? In fact, let's close with this. I don't even want us to wait until we get home to apply this truth, okay? So what we're going to do is we're just going to embed verse 26 into our hearts right now. We're just going to embed it into our hearts so that we can speak this living truth over any circumstance we face. Okay, so what I'm going to ask you to do is we're just going to read this aloud together. And we're going to try to just really just ingrain that in our hearts and minds, okay? So let's read this, verse 26 with me. Here we go. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's say it again, repeat it again. Let's emphasize God, okay? Here we go. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's just try to get that in our hearts, in our minds. Let's get it ingrained in here, okay? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And if you can just memorize that right now, let's just go ahead and try that. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen, amen, amen. Let's pray. God, who are we but brutish, ignorant, senseless fools before you? Who are we to argue against you? And who are we to come before you and say, God, what is this? I deserve better than this. Who are we to say that? And yet, while we have nothing to deserve from you, we have no sense of, of deserving anything from you, anything good from you, Father, you somehow have given us the grace to walk with you, to rely on you and have this rock-solid sense of security and this hope for eternity with you, God. You have given that to us. And I pray that, Father, in every one of our lives, there may be certain things, Father, of course, that, that are just so, just so dark and so discouraging. But, Father, I just pray that this truth will be spoken over our lives just now, that our hearts and may flesh may fail, but, God, you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. We pray that that truth would resonate deep in our lives for as long as we live until that day, until that day we are led right up into your arms in heaven. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this reminder, Father God, that you are always doing exactly what we need most. And that is to be drawn into your arms for eternity. God, a lot of things shake us up. A lot of things mess with us. But we always rely on this rock-solid truth of yours, God. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this Sunday that you've spoken this word to us. Would it bear lasting fruit in our hearts? All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.